Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Why did we create the Organic Oasis Guidebook? And why are we creating the Organic Oasis Masterclass with the amazing Patty Armbruster? When you get membership to her fan club and a weekly Q&A, not a weekly, a monthly Q&A with her. So it's because we want to help you live in the most earth-friendly, healthiest environment you can. So it's good for you. It's good for Mother Earth. Whether you grow vegetables or not, we will help you. You know, gardening can be a lot of work, but it can also, you can live in a beautiful landscape and that will help your neighborhood or local farmer or gardener, you know, their farm produce more food because you're inviting bees into your neighborhood with a pollinator border that's so pretty and you can pick bouquets of flowers or you can just enjoy them and just it's a beautiful place by your home whether you want to grow food or vegetables that's why we call it the organic oasis and we've been build, working on building our organic oasis for well mike and i've been married 27 years so we have been working on it very 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 slowly so we know how it goes and we've struggled with water we've and then i've interviewed over 300 people on the organic gardener podcast so I just know that um, I have gone from brown thumb to green thumb. So, you know, whatever your idea of an organic oasis is, whether you want a bee sanctuary or um, an earth-friendly landscape or you want to grow more vegetables, um, I've got the experts, Mike and Patty and all the guests that I've talked to to help you succeed and be able to eat healthy food and feed your kids healthy food and you know, um, just have access, you know, uh, fruits are some of the coolest things to grow. A raspberry patch keeps producing. You can get luscious blueberries. And those are the kind of things that maybe need a little watering, a little bit. They're very low maintenance. One of my amazing guests was Tara, who wrote the book on growing fruit trees in the Pacific Northwest. And she talks about it because she wanted low maintenance because she was gardening at her mom's house. So all sorts of great tips for you on how to create your own earth-friendly organic oasis 12 days straight (laughs) it's uh it's going all right you know i'm two quarts into a two gallon painting job in the bedroom i've been getting by for three years by telling her i'm way too busy to to do this i'm way too busy (laughs) now i'm in a corner now i'm locked in now i'm locked in the house i have no other choice so where where are you guys located in minnesota we're in i'm in roseville minnesota which is right between minneapolis and st paul it's kind of a in interior ring suburb in the city and you're on are you guys on lockdown or are you just like self-quarantining just in case or there's no businesses open and they recommend that you don't that you don't you know obviously you you could go out if you had to you know go buy food or something but um you know it's just better if i think if we don't here for a while at least i know i want them to like make a pledge or i want someone to make me a pledge to say i will stay home because if i think about where i've been in the last we were still in school 14 days ago and it's just like it's it's hard you go out and you see somebody and you're like i know i'm not supposed to hug this person well now i think we're all like the six feet thing and don't go out unless you but there's still people that are ignoring it that are just like you know i know i can't believe it because i I think it's because there's not a like sincere 
one official, you know, set of leadership saying, everybody do this and let's just, you know, do our best to not overload the system and hopefully it'll be over sooner than later, like, you know, in two weeks or four weeks, whatever. Like, I think they're saying like the middle of April, if we do this, but if we don't do this. It could go on for a long time. I don't know. Yeah. And just every chance that we're not like, I feel like they should have bet yeah. this down sooner. I'm, anyway, I'm, doing, I'm trying to do my part. Good and for not, you. Not breathe on anyone. <laughs> it is not easy. So that's why I want like somebody to make me like sign a pledge. Cause I'll be like, all right, I'm not going to get out of my car. I'm just going to like, you know, whatever. And then yeah, we've been really, out of my car. We've been pretty good about it. Following directions. So good for I'm you. A, I'm a well, that's what I, we don't have really like, or even like the grocery You're in stores. Montana, right? Yeah. Like they okay. weren't wearing gloves. Another word like, but I even talked to my mom and my brother in New York and they went to the grocery store yesterday and i'm like are the yeah. people wearing masks are they wearing why are you going to the grocery store mom you told me you weren't going to go to the grocery store so yeah i wore uh, gloves i i had to go um last week but i wore my fancy rubber gloves and then as soon as i come out i take the gloves off and throw them in the garbage and then i do the hand sanitizer thing so yeah i have like, I'm paranoid about i was it. amazed i found wipes and like when i touched like to fill my gas tank i use a wipe to hold the yeah, right. thing i put like wipe my credit card off with the thing i put it into the slot with the thing i the shopping cart door handles like yeah. i either have gloves on or and i just hope but i just when i think about where we've been in the last two weeks my husband yeah. and i were thinking this morning like i've really only been like where i haven't talked to a person or bought something in a stores like for two days yeah. yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird time. And you know, we're going to look back in history in future and we're going to say, yeah, I lived back when we had that sequestration for a month from the virus. You know, we're all, we're all going to remember that just like people, you know, that were our hundred years old talk about the flu they went through in 1918 or whatever, you know, everybody will look back on this. I think someday, We'll look back on it as you know we survived and we're we made it through um i think today it just kind of feels overwhelming for a lot of people but. yeah and i i am positive we will come out stronger as a nation and hopefully more together and community-minded and i hope so. people are going to learn things and i hope i don't know we're in beautiful montana so like yeah you know there are plenty of places to walk <laughs> you guys and, have been practicing isolation self-isolation for years right Up yeah there. we're pretty good my husband he's better than i am i struggle like i'm like i need a full tank of gas and i need to be able to get my car and at least drive somewhere if not take my dogs to the woods or go see my bff and we just stay six feet apart while we're walking and yeah. it's weird but just i don't know let's just do our yeah so i don't know anyway let's talk about gardening all right that sounds good so I always tell everybody it's super easy to edit. So if you need to let the dog out or get a drink or, you know, answer a question or you want to think about something, come back to it. Like, don't hesitate okay. to put me on hold. And I don't know. Do you have any questions for me? No, I'm ready. All right. Well, uh, I'll just introduce you and we'll go from there then. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Um, and the recording. Okay, good. Uh, welcome to the Green Organic Garden Podcast. So today is Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. Yes, it is at the beginning of the craziest time in my life as I know it and your life. And so people are super excited to talk about gardening. We are officially at my school on spring break this week. So 
I'm in beautiful Montana. I've been getting outdoors. I hope you're getting outdoors and here to talk to you about some cool things you can do to garden is Joel Karsten from Straw Bale Garden. So welcome to the show, Joel. Oh, it's great to be with you. Well, go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm in Minnesota. I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. I grew up in Southern Minnesota on a little crop and dairy farm and moved to the city to go to college in the late 80s and uh, been here ever since. Was going to go back to the farm, but then I met a girl and you know how that stuff goes. I never made it back to the farm. Um, But now I'm an author, writer, speaker. Um, I garden myself at home, of course, and I also am involved in several community gardens. And I travel around the country, especially in the spring, winter and spring. And I speak a lot at home and garden shows in the United States and some in Europe as well about the strawbell gardening method, which is a a method of gardening that I pioneered. This is my 29th spring. So 29 springs ago, I started doing it. Well, awesome. So we're, well, so you said you grew up on a farm. I did. Well, where do you want to start? Like pioneering this method or like, what are some basic things that people want to know? Well, One thing, my husband who grew up on a ranch is always like reminding me, there is a difference between straw and hay. Yeah, very much. Straw is of course, what remains after the cereal grains are harvested, like wheat and oats and barley, take the seeds off and that becomes wheaties and oatmeal. Then you bale up the stalks and normally that's used as bedding for livestock. That's its, its normal agricultural use is as bedding material because it, it has hollow stalks. If you look carefully, you'll notice that the stems are hollow and those hollow stalks hold air, which is, acts like insulation. So your livestock can lay in the bed of straw and it provides insulation. And then the straws have this amazing capacity to suck up and hold on to moisture, um, which we'll get back to a little bit later. But that's what makes it so good at holding on to a large capacity of moisture inside of a bale to hold five gallons of water. And so it, it acts as a reservoir for for. If you're using it with livestock, it acts for reservoir for urine so that when it's completely saturated, of course, then the farmer sends his son or daughter in there with a pitchfork and they put all that heavy wet straw in the manure spreader and they haul it away. So it's like a diaper for livestock. So that's the agricultural use of straw. Hay is food. Hay is fodder for livestock. And usually in this part of the world, if you say I'm feeding my dairy cows a hay bale, that usually means alfalfa hay, clover hay. If you're feeding horses hay, it could mean alfalfa hay, but it could also mean grass hay. If you bale up grass, that'll have the seed heads and everything right on it. And that has some nutritional value, um, but alfalfa hay has lots of protein in it. So it's a very valuable crop. And it's, it's actually the reason you grow the alfalfa is to bale it and feed it or chop it and feed it to your, to your livestock. So it's not a byproduct of the crop. Like straw is a byproduct of the oats or the wheat crop where the reason you grow hay is to feed it to livestock. So it's usually more expensive and it's heavier. Um, And like I said, it has a lot of protein in it. Well, if you do the chemistry, protein breaks down into nitrogen. So you could use a hay bale for the straw bale gardening method, believe it or not. Um, And it will work just fine, but it's more expensive it breaks down a lot quicker. It doesn't hold moisture quite as well as a straw bale. And usually with a hay bale, you only get one season of growth, where with straw bales, we can often use them for two years. So that's really the difference between the two. 
Well, he uses it mostly for mulch. And so he says you sure. don't want to get the hay seeds in your beds. Yeah, there can be, it kind of depends again on when you cut the crop. Normal hay crop is cut three times a summer, depending on the weather. Sometimes could be four times, or if it was real dry, it could be twice a summer. And usually cut when you get to one tenth flower, like a, a alfalfa field. When one in 10 plants has a, is showing a flower, then you'll bale it. So that crop never gets a chance to get to where the seeds are mature. Now there might be weeds that have mature seeds that get bailed up into the bales. Hopefully not too many weeds. If you're a good farmer, you shouldn't have too many weeds. Um, and if you're baling like grass hay, usually it depends. Again, because if you cut it a couple times a year, the seed heads will never have a chance to completely mature. Uh, where if you don't cut it at all, and then you just come late in the fall or late in the summer and you bale your ditch grass, for instance, that could have all kinds of seeds in it. Um, and then when you water and fertilize that bale, of course, you're going to get a bunch of seeds that will sprout. So from a sprouting standpoint, um, sometimes hay bales can be really bad about that. Sometimes they're not so bad. Same thing with straw. If you get a really good combine that takes all of the oats or all of the wheat seeds off of the plant when you're harvesting, then it won't have any seeds in it. But if you got a combine that's not adjusted right or somebody that's using older equipment and they don't get all the seeds off you can have a bale of straw that will have lots of seeds that will sprout out of it as well um, but those are easy to take care of that's a that's a very minor problem it happens early in the season right when you're prepping the bales and getting them ready before you plant and you can easily trim those off or spray them with a little vinegar and knock them back and then you don't have to deal with any weeds after that so that's one of the delights of straw bale gardening is that there are no weeds. Well, I'm sure listeners like that part. So how does somebody start? Like, do they go to their local farm and get some straw bales? Like, and then you were talking about prepping them? Yeah, it's a process we call conditioning. I should probably go back a little bit. When I um, started straw bale gardening, the, the reason essentially that I started this, they always say, you know, the old saying necessity is the mother of all invention. Um, and that's really the case of what happened here. I grew up, like I said, on a dairy farm and we'd have a broken bale of straw, broken string, and it would get tossed against the barn. And we always thought, you know, we'll come back and get that one later. But as soon as a bale of straw, which is bedding has been rained on once, it's pretty much worthless to a farmer because I always joke with people that you never put a wet diaper on a baby. You'd never bed your livestock with pre-wetted straw because it's bedding, right? So at that point, we would ignore the bale and we'd just leave it lay by the barn and it would get rained on all summer and natural decomposition would begin. And by the middle of the next summer, the biggest, tallest, healthiest, greenest thistles in the whole county were the ones that were growing out of these straw bales laying by our barn. And I would notice this even as a little kid and I would run and get the pitchfork when the manure spreader came by and my dad would say, pitch that old dirty old straw bale on the manure spreader. But you'd try to pick it up with a fork and it was so decomposed, it would just fall through the tines of the fork. And that left an impression on me, even as a little kid. Now we fast forward, I go away to college and I, I get a degree in horticulture and I buy my first house. And of course, when the moving van pulls up and you have a degree in horticulture, your first instinct is to grab your shovel and run to the yard and find out what kind of soil you bought, right? With this new property. Well, it turns out I had a half an inch or an inch of topsoil that covered most of my lot. And I had another problem. I had just graduated college and I had just bought a house. I had no money to build raised beds, which is what a normal gardener would do. So 
I remembered back to when I was on the farm and these great big thistles growing out of these bales. And I thought, now I have a degree in horticulture and I understand that it takes almost the same nutrient profile to grow thistles as it does to grow tomatoes and peppers. So why wouldn't this work, right? So I went and got some straw bales and I started some experimenting and tried different methods. And essentially the first year I did this about two or three months into the season, I knew I would never go back to, to traditional gardening because this worked so unbelievably well. Um, and I sort of perfected the method after over the next couple of years. But I always joke, Jackie, that for the first 14 years I did this, straw bell gardening, there wasn't a whole lot of people that cared. A few friends and relatives and a few colleagues that were kind of curious and interested, but not a lot of people were interested. And then 15 years ago, this spring, I got on the local news, on the CARE 11 affiliate, the NBC affiliate, and it just exploded. It's like the next day people started actually started calling the TV studio asking, Hey, that guy that was on, where can we find more information? And this was early days of the internet, right? 15 years ago. So I built a little one page website that people could get information. And then I ended up writing a little self published booklet about um, this method of straw bell gardening. And that little self published booklet started going all over the world. And that was of course the beginnings of the internet and, and early days of Facebook. So we put a page on the Facebook and uh, Twitter came along and, you know, other social media, Instagram, and it just started to spread this technique around the world. Then the publishers came and I wrote my first published book about straw bell gardening in 2013 for Cool Springs Press. Um, but it's just sort of created this explosion. Now the books are in 30 languages and 60 countries around the world. And it's, be, it's, kind of become this little cult within straw within gardening the straw bale gardening community is really sort of a family and we try to teach each other and we try to um, encourage each other and teach each other the techniques you know for people who are just starting um, it, it's the first step in learning about straw bale gardening is to understand that plants don't grow very well in plain old straw they don't but they grow really well in recently decomposed straw, which is really important. We need to first take the bale through this 12-day preparation process that we call conditioning before we plant. And that conditioning process is really all about rapid decomposition or rapid composting inside the bale. So the inside of that bale is going to become soil. It's very early stage soil. It doesn't look like soil yet, but by the time we plant, the inside of that bale has become biologically very early stage soil or compost. And that's where we begin the process is helping people understand that we're not just buying a bale of straw and popping a plant into it because you won't be successful if you do that. You need to do this conditioning process first. And once you've done that, you can basically plant anything and it does amazingly well. And there's so many advantages to the straw bale gardening method over traditional gardening methods, in my opinion. So do you have to buy other stuff besides the straw bale? Like, do you, what do you put in it? Or do you just like put like compost in the middle of it? No, for the conditioning process, that's a common question I get actually. Do I just dig the bale out and put dirt in there? And I always tell people no, because then you'd just be soil gardening a foot and a half up in the air on top of a bale. You really would be defeating the whole purpose. Um, you need to get some source of nitrogen. Now, if you're an organic gardener, 
what I highly recommend is blood meal. It works really well for this method. Um, and blood meal is just dried blood. Um, it's usually from a place that, you know, processes animals. We like to use porcine blood meal, which is pork blood meal. Um, but you can use feather meal, which is ground up feathers. Um, you could use corn gluten. Um, if you're a, a lot of people who are vegan or vegetarian, they don't want to use animal blood. That's perfectly fine. You can, you can find alternatives, but you need something that has a minimum of 5% nitrogen content. Um, chicken manure would work for this. If you had access to pure manure, what I, what I discourage people from doing is using like, if you have bedding mixed in with your chicken manure, then trying to use, you know, this has got lots of sawdust or wood chips or, uh, wood shavings and, or straw mixed with the chicken manure, then it's very difficult to make that work because you can't get enough of it worked down into the bale. Um, but you need to have something with at least 5% nitrogen. And then you use that every other day over this 10 day period and you water every day. And that nitrogen that we're putting on the bale is going to feed the bacteria inside the bale. This is not about feeding plant roots because there are no plant roots in there yet. This is a preparation process. What we're really doing is the problem is it's an invisible process because you can't see it happen. You can't see these microbes grow. But what we're doing is we're feeding bacteria inside the bale. The bacteria are going to quickly colonize the entire bale. And you can't see this happen because of course you have to have a microscope with a 400 power lens to be able to see a bacteria. But you can feel it happen. You can put your hand in there. You can feel that bale get warm. And that warmth comes from these colonizing bacteria. And once the bacteria have completely colonized the bale, then they'll start to metabolize the straw. What I mean by that is they, they work together with Mother Nature's other, other tools from her toolkit, which are things like insects and worms and fungi and mold. And then, of course, bacteria, the heavy lifter. And they begin decomposing or metabolizing the straw. And this process is, you know, it's very small. Everything that happens here is very small, but it's basically breaking down the leaves and the stalks of the oats or the wheat or whatever's inside that bale. It's breaking those down into the cells that made them. Then those cells are broken down into the compounds that made the cells. And then the compounds are broken down into individual charged molecules of things you and I would recognize. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, molybdenum, zinc, calcium, iron, manganese, all of the micro and macronutrients that a, that plant used to grow the wheat or the oats become available again in a form, these ions and cations, individually charged molecules inside the bale for the root of a new plant to then absorb. So then when you put your tomato in the bale, the tomato can absorb through the roots or whatever, whatever you're going to grow in the bale, can absorb through the roots, these individual ions they form new compounds, which form new cells. The cells form new stems and new leaves and new flowers and new fruits um, come up and grow out of this bale. So it's really a fundamental, basic biological process that, that happens here of decomposition and then regrowth or new growth in, uh, from plants that you put inside the bale. And you put plants in the bales, right? You transplant, you start, like you don't put seeds in them, do you? Sure. You can plant seeds. Yeah. If you're using big seeds like peas and beans, you know, something that's as big as the tip of your pinky finger, 
you can just stick those seeds right down into the straw bale. You don't need any kind of a seed bed at all. But if you're doing really tiny seeds like carrots um, or radish or something, real small seeds, now you're, you're going to need to make a seed bed. Um, and to make a seed bed, I encourage people to buy a bag of planting mix um, because you don't want anything that's going to have disease or insect problems that are soil borne. And you certainly don't want to add weed seeds. So if you were to take a shovel of soil, topsoil from your garden and put on top of the bales, now you just brought all kinds of weed seeds that you've introduced and potentially disease or insect problems that harbor in that soil that are soil borne. Um, and we want to avoid those. We can avoid those if we just use sterile planting mix on top and then put our little tiny carrot seeds in that planting mix. Awesome. Well, you are full of all sorts of valuable, I call them golden seeds uh, for listeners. So I don't know. What else do you want to tell people? Well, uh, there's lots of advantages to growing in the straw bale. Uh, using this method of gardening. That's a common question I get is, well, why would I want to grow in straw bales? I got all this soil out in back my backyard. There's a lot of advantages. Number one is the no weeding thing that, that I already talked about. Um, you'll go the whole summer. I get, we get lots of posts, <laughs> you know, awesome. in today's world of social media, we get lots of posts on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, or especially in the fall, people will say, I'm so upset I didn't discover this method 20 years ago because I've gone all summer this year and not pulled one weed out of my garden. I should have been doing this for the last 20 years. Um, and then the other common, the other common one is I'll never, I swear I'll never go back to planting in the soil ever again. This is the greatest thing ever. Now that be, might be a bit of an exaggeration, um, but they do say that, you know, they may be exaggerating a little bit, but they certainly, they do say that because people fall in love with this method of gardening. It's hard to, hard to communicate how excited people get about it. And it, it spread, this method spreads very quickly. And I often get asked, why do you think it has become this thing, this phenomenon around the world and spread so quickly? And it's really pretty simple. It's because it's so conspicuous. If you think about it, you know, you could walk by a neighbor's house up the street, walk on your dog every night for 10 years. And your friend could ask you, does that house up on the corner, the blue house, do they have any do they have a vegetable garden? And you would think to yourself, you know, I don't really remember specifically if they do or not. But if that blue house puts 10 bales of straw in their front yard, everybody within six blocks in every direction is going to know that blue house on the corner. And then everybody's going to be very nervous. You know, are they bringing goats in or what's happening? And then they see them plant in these bales and they see these tomatoes or whatever grow out of these bales all summer. And this amazing harvest that they get out of these bales is sort of becomes an attention grabber for the neighborhood. And that's what inspires other neighbors to do it. They see that somebody did it and it seemed pretty simple and pretty easy to do and didn't take a lot of maintenance. Very often um, when you put bales in your yard, you become a teacher. So people will stop by while they're walking by or they'll literally pull over and jump out of the car and they'll come and ask questions. You know, explain what you're doing here. What is this? Is this, it looks like you have plants growing out of there. Is this a is this a vegetable garden? Explain how this works, right? And so you become a teacher, whether you like it or not, um, when you put these bales in your yard. So it spreads because of that. It's one of the main reasons. Big advantage, you don't have to bend over all the way to the ground. And everybody's going to get to the point, you become a, a seasoned gardener, a well-seasoned gardener, um, 
it becomes more and more difficult to do the physical part of gardening. You know, moving and preparing soil, modifying soil beds, doing a double dig on your vegetable garden. That's a lot of physical labor, physical work, or rototilling your garden. That's a lot of physical work. Once you get the bales in position, so if you can get the delivery person to set them in your garden where you're going to use them, there's no physical work really left after that. There's no lifting or hoeing or, or weeding. Um, you might need to have a pruning shears and a planting trowel. It's really the only tools you're going to need to do this. You could put a lawn chair right next to the bale and do your planting at, from a seated position. Um, anybody who uses a wheelchair to get around, you can easily plant out the side of a wheelchair uh, from a very comfortable position. And straw bale gardening is relatively inexpensive. Yes, you do have to buy the bales. That's, a, that's an upfront investment. Um, but say you pay 5 or $6 for a bale of straw, you're going to use it, first of all, for two seasons. So the first year, you're going you're gonna to grow warm season crops in that bale things that like warm roots, like tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers. And then the second season, you're going to use that same bale. You might need to reconnoiter it a little bit, kind of squeeze it together and put some chicken wire around it because they do start to slump as they start to decompose, of course. So I like to squish two bales into one and then wrap it with chicken wire. Then you plant your cool season crops. So your root crops grow really well in a second season bale. Um, potatoes, beets and carrots and all that kind of stuff. And then by the time the second season is over and you get to the third spring, you go in and use what remains, which will be this beautiful pile of compost. I say it's like making your own miracle grow at home. And you can use that in all your containers. So you fill up your containers for your flowers on the patio or your window boxes or whatever. And you can use it for a season. Usually you get a, a season, sometimes two seasons, but usually just one season using it as a potting mix inside of a container. So you really get three distinctive uses, three seasons of use out of that five or $6 bale. And if you count up all the time you spend weeding and watering your garden that you can eliminate because you have this, um, the straw bale that has this amazing water holding capacity to suck up and hold five gallons of water and that doesn't grow any weeds. So you don't have to weed your garden. It eliminates all that labor that you normally spend um, in your garden throughout the summer. So there's some significant savings to using this method of gardening. I wonder if any of my listeners, so I call my listeners green future growers because we're dedicated to more than just our own gardens. And like a lot of them have garden businesses. And like, this seems like this would make a great business idea where you went and like built straw bale gardens for people that don't want to take care of their you know, don't want to do the work of gardening, but want fresh homegrown vegetables, just like a landscaper who comes and mows their lawn or whatever, you know, and then it wouldn't require you to go to a piece of property every single day. Like maybe you could go to a couple of houses Monday and a couple of houses Tuesday, and then go back to that Monday house on like Wednesday or Thursday, instead of having to go to every house. Like, is that an idea? I don't. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great idea. That's a, we actually threw around a concept and I ran it by some garden center owners. This is interesting that you bring this up. We threw on a concept. It was called Snap Fresh Vegetable Gardens. And it was where you would order, you know, we would market it through um, home and garden shows, that kind of thing, where you would order as a consumer, you would order a vegetable garden and you say what you like to eat, right? What does your family like to eat? And then that garden would be delivered and set up completely by the garden center. and all the 
preparation would be done by the garden center in advance of when they deliver everything. So the bales would essentially be delivered ready to be planted and could even be planted by the garden center as well. And then all the family would be responsible is, you know, it's got automated watering and just a little hose end timer hooked up to it. So all the family would be responsible for is the harvesting process and to be able to walk out your back door and get, you know, 300 pounds of fresh vegetables off of six or eight or 10 bales of straw. And then in the fall, have the garden center come back and take it all away. And in the spring, deliver the bales again. You know, it would be, for many families, it would be something very feasible. Here's where the breakdown was in the whole process. I talked to a bunch of garden centers. They're all very interested, but it's a labor issue, especially early in the spring when you'd be setting up all these gardens. You would, of course, need one of your quality employees to help head this or run this operation and it would take them away from the traditional garden center business and for many of them that's their busiest time and they just thought you know taking my some of my key employees out of my garden center or my nursery for this busy spring season would be detrimental to my business and so that was kind of the downfall was that it was a high labor concentrated use of labor for a one month period of time, basically a couple of your key employees would be full-time committed to doing this to make it work financially. Um, And that's where the downside was for these guys. But it's a brilliant idea that you just thought of that off the top of your head. It's pretty amazing, Jackie, I have to say, Um, because we thought, we thought it through a lot. And I think there's still an opportunity there for, for that to be some kind of a business. If it was the only thing someone was doing, I think they could make a business out of it, certainly. Yeah, or, I mean, there's seasonal workers. There's people that are willing to get hired to do a job, I think, but you might not get your quality employees that way. I can see where there could be trouble. Um, I could come up with a business idea probably like every couple of hours. (laughs) I don't know why. I listen to all these business podcasts. (laughs) I I like people people like that. I know I love that though. I love sitting down with people that are creative like that, that have a business mind and think of ideas like that. I think it's terrific. So I would, we could, we could probably sit and talk for an hour about that as well. Well, cool. So what's next? Like, I think a lot of, because I get a lot of people like, cause I'm not really the gardener at my house and I get a lot of listeners mm-hmm. and people I talk to that are like, yeah, but I don't have a mic to build me my deep garden beds and to get my soil all prepped for me, Jackie, like you do. And so I think this is a great um, solution for those kind of people too, that maybe are on their own. Sure, yeah. One of the reasons I don't do a lot of it is I'm usually working full time. So this is a good, you know, yeah. thing for people who, who, you know, are working and busy, you know, there'll be days are in busy. the summer where I don't see the garden for five days. Cause like, I leave for work yeah. and it's an hour drive each way to work. And then if I stop at the store after school or whatever, you know, there are days where I don't. Yeah. yeah. I hear you. So that's one of the reasons why this is a perfect type of garden for a modern family. You know, somebody who's busy and both, both parents work. Um, maybe you do have a couple of kids and you want to, you want to try to eat healthy and you want to have organic stuff for your kids to be able to eat. And it also is kind of nice to teach your kids, how gardens work. And, and, you know, if you don't have any experience uh, gardening, you know, I, I grew up gardening. So I learned how to garden from my grandma Josephine back on the farm when I grew up. But for people who didn't have that experience, if you didn't have a grandma or a grandpa or a parent or somebody that's interested in gardening, even for the parents, it could be interesting and valuable for them to learn 
to garden as well. And this is really a shortcut or a hack method to traditional gardening. You know that traditional gardening, when you're dealing with soil, you have tons and tons of variables that come into play. You know, what kind of soil do you have? What kind of soil modification are you going to need? What's the fertility level? How much organic matter do you have? There's so many variables. And then you have to deal with insect and disease problems that can come along and become pests that harbor from year to year in that same soil. I don't know if you've ever heard of the tomato blight, right? Which is kind of a generic term for septoria or verticillium and uh, fusarium. There's a bunch of different tomato diseases, but they can cause tomato decline or, or tomato failure in people's gardens. And if that happens, a great solution is to not use your soil anymore and instead go to a straw bale that sits on top of the soil. Now, as long as you never touch your soil and then touch that tomato, you'll never transfer that disease back to the tomato plant. So particular for people like in an urban setting where they have a small lot and they don't have a lot of room to rotate crops, crop rotation can be really important. If you have a, lots of acreage and you can move your tomatoes to another place on your, on your farm or your ranch, that's an easy solution. But for people who have a small city lot, that's not really an option a lot of times. So once you get the blight in your tomatoes, you're kind of out of luck. You can't really grow tomatoes for a while, four or five years before that goes away out of your soil. So this is a great solution for people that have that kind of an issue as well. Or people that do have just a tiny area to garden and you don't have room to rotate crops at all. Um, you know, you can't grow potatoes in the same soil every year. Uh, you're going to deplete the micronutrients. You're going to get buildup of insect and disease problems and your crop will fail, surely. So switching to this method allows you to not have to worry about doing any crop rotation because you're planting in new soil inside this bale. Every, every time you bring in a new bale, that's creating new soil in your, in your garden. So it's a great solution for lots of those type of soil-borne problems. And for a, for a modern family that's busy, doesn't have time to do weeding, once you get the bale garden set up and you do the conditioning, which takes 10 days really of prep, and each day that means about literally 45 seconds per bale, <laughs> to do the prep process. You sprinkle the fertilizer on top and you do 30 second spray with your hose and you're done. And you move to the next bale. Uh, so 45 seconds on each bale. So, you know, if you've got 10 bales, it's gonna take you 10 minutes at the most, something like that during the prep time. So that's for 10 days. And then on the 12th day, or if, if you're using the um, blood meal, it's gonna take you 18 days to get ready. Um, so 10 days of the adding the fertilizer and water, and then you let it sit for another eight days and let that bacteria grow inside. Then you're ready to plant. So now it's planting day. If you didn't grow your seeds or your starts at, at your house, you're going to need to go out for people like you and I that are in northern climates. You're going to need to get your tomatoes already started um, if you're going to plant those in the bale. And some of your other crops you might want to buy already started at the garden center. If you're doing seeds, you can do direct plant your beans and peas and things like that right into the bales. Um, for most of your crops, if you normally grow them by seed, you certainly can grow them by seed in your bales. Um, if there's other crops that sometimes you buy starts and sometimes you can plant seeds, then go ahead and try the seeds in the bales because you'll see the bale is so much warmer inside that you'll get much faster early season growth, faster root growth inside that bale. Um, so usually they'll catch up with what you would go to the garden center and buy. 
So if, there, if it's a toss up between the two, I always say go with the seeds because it's a lot less expensive and there's a lot more varieties available if you, if you order your seeds ahead of time. So plant your seeds and then set up an irrigation system. Watering systems can be as simple as a soaker hose down and back on the bale and then hook that to a hose end timer so that you don't have to remember to water, your hose end timer will water for you. And the key to a successful straw bale garden, I'll tell you the number one mistake people make when they start straw bale gardening is they overwater their gardens. It's very common. Um, and if you overwater, it will give you symptoms in your plant that look like you've underwatered. The plants will start to wilt if you overwater. And when they wilt, then you think to yourself, oh, I didn't water enough. They must be drying out, so I'm gonna water more. And it just exacerbates the problem, makes it worse. So important part of straw bale gardening is never water more than one gallon per bale per application. Usually one gallon will resaturate the bale, rehydrate the bale completely. And then if you put any more than that on, it's gonna run through and out the bottom of the bale and it's gonna carry with it all your soluble nutrients, things like nitrogen, calcium, things that your plants are gonna need inside that bale. So you don't wanna overwater. That's really essential, really important. So an automated waterer, but then just calculate. You know, if you got 10 bales, you need one gallon per bale, you need 10 gallons of water. So you need to determine how fast the water comes out of your spigot. So time it, put a bucket under there and see if in one gallon, if in one minute you get two gallons, then you only need to water for five minutes to get 10 gallons of water. And you might need to increase the frequency as the summer gets hotter and your plants get bigger and they're starting to use more water then you'll increase the frequency, but you never increase the dose. So instead of twice a week or three times a week, now you go to every other day, or you maybe go to every day when it really starts to get hot. And when it's you know late July, early August, and you got eight foot tall tomatoes up there with a hundred tomatoes growing on the plant, now you might need to water twice or even three times a day. But that's real easy to do just by clicking that little dial on your hose end timer. And you put a little nine volt battery in there and takes care of all of the watering work you had to do all summer last summer. So this is my question. Like, what do you put under them? Do they go right on the ground or like, do you put something plastic under them? Like if you want to put them on a patio where you don't want to like have a mark, like what do you put under the bale? Well, if you're doing them on soil, like it, where your traditional garden normally was, you could just put them right on top of the soil. And then I encourage people to mulch around them somehow, either with wood chips or something to keep weeds from growing in between the rows of bales. That's something you'll have to deal with. I do see lots of people who are sort of going to test, going to test straw bale gardening to see whether they really like it or not. So they'll just put it right on their lawn, believe it or not, right? You go to the back part of their lot somewhere and they'll find a spot and they just put the bales right on top of the grass. And then they mow around the bales. And you can do that. You know, you go around with a string trimmer and trim the grass. And it's just like you have containers sitting out in the middle of your lawn. You're not going to be very successful if you grow pumpkins there, however, because that's going to create a whole vine field around that garden. And then that's going to get mixed in with your grass. It's going to make things really complicated. But then once people are convinced that they really like this idea and, and it's successful for them, then I encourage them to put down you know, cardboard boxes work really well. Put down a layer of cardboard over top of all the grass that you want to kill and then cover that up with four or five, even six inches of arborist chips. And these are just run-of-the-mill chips that you get from an arborist after he cuts underneath your neighbor's tree and they run them through that big wood chipper. Uh, you hear him making the loud noise at seven o'clock on Saturday morning, right? Um, that's the guy you want to go pound on his window and say, hey, can you dump that big load of wood chips in my driveway? And then you cover up that cardboard with a nice five-inch layer. These don't have to be fancy-looking wood chips like you buy at the store, right? Just run-of-the-mill arborist chips. 
and that melts down and, and eventually that decomposes and becomes just a beautiful layer, it kills the grass underneath with the cardboard, and then you won't get any weeds that will grow. You need to top dress those wood chips every couple of years, add a couple more inches. Um, but you can have a beautiful garden in that spot. We did one in, actually, I didn't do this one, but it was done. I, I gave advice and did some consulting on it. A garden out in Kearney, New Jersey. This is just over the bridge from Manhattan in New, in, uh, New Jersey. And they had built this entire garden on top of a federally contaminated brown site. So there's lead and mercury in the soil below the garden. And they covered up the soil with this grow cover cloth. It's like landscape fabric, but it's, you know, big, huge, 30 feet wide and 150 feet long sheets. And so they covered up the ground with that. And then they put wood chips on top of that to keep the sun from breaking down this, this fabric. And then they put bales on top of the wood chips. And this will be their, I think it's their eighth spring, if I'm not mistaken. Kearney Community, Kearney, New Jersey Community Garden. They're on Facebook. I know they have a page on there. And they've got tons of people now that are participating in this community garden that's entirely grown in bales above the ground on top of what was a federally contaminated uh, location that couldn't be used for anything previously. So it really is adaptable. It's a, it's a great method for urban gardening from that standpoint as well. Hmm, interesting. I was just talking to, uh, I was on the Green Gab podcast yesterday with Marla Clues and we were talking about community gardens. Anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you. thing about community gardens is it's really easy to get volunteers to come on planting day and it's easy to get volunteers to come on harvest day. But it's funny how when you call them on weeding day, nobody answers their phone, right? So it's one of the things about community gardening is it can get to be a, an issue with weeds, you know, especially people who don't, if they have their own assigned plot and they don't take care of it, well then, you know, are you going to go in and weed their plot for them so that those weeds don't affect your, your part of the garden? It becomes this controversy, right? Where with straw bale gardening, we don't have that issue because there's no weeds. It literally eliminates that aspect of gardening. So it makes the process so much simpler um, the, the Kearney New, Guard, New Jersey Garden inspired a really nice garden in the Bronx in New York, right along the, the shoreline where Hurricane Sandy came in and pushed all that saline, all that salt water up onto the land and basically ruined everyone's garden soil. And you can't garden in that soil for many years until that saline level goes down again, the salt level. So as a substitute, they started straw bale gardening. And now they got these huge community gardens all in straw bales right along the shoreline in places like the Bronx, um, in New York and all the way. That's awesome. As well. So do you want to go through some of the questions I normally ask? Like, uh, do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Like is weeding sure. your least favorite activity or. Yeah, weeding. Yeah, I did enough weeding before I was 15 years old on the farm, pulling weeds in the vegetable garden there. And my, we had a dairy farm, of course, and a, and a crop farm. And then my dad didn't have enough stuff to keep him busy. So we started a tree nursery, which all has to be weeded. That was about 30 acres. And then we had, uh, my grandma had a huge vegetable garden, probably close to, I would say three quarters of an acre. Um, with including all of our like corn and all that kind of stuff and potato field and stuff. Um, so all that had to be weeded. So 
Yeah, I got plenty of weeding before I ever left home for college. Uh, I don't, I don't need to weed anything ever again. It's my least favorite part, but um, yeah, I would say that's probably for every gardener. Isn't that the worst part of gardening? Is having uh, some people like to pull weeds, I guess, but that's it's just not my thing. I don't mind pulling a few weeds here and there. I don't like when like I've let it go and it gets overwhelming or like I'm down in Mike's mini farm where it's like all on the ground and you're bending over for extended periods of time, but like a little weeding on the side of a deep bed. I don't mind here and there. Yeah. Uh, So on the weeds pull out easy. It's easy. On the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? I love to go out with a cup of coffee early in the morning, midsummer, you know, when stuff is, is getting ripe and, you know, pick some cherry tomatoes or green beans and just, you know, eat, eat my mid morning snack in the garden and just enjoy the birds and the sounds and not, you know, I mean, most people, when they go to their garden, the first thing they have to do is start pulling weeds and, and dealing with bad issues. And really with the straw bug garden, it's, I hate to say this, but it's really the maintenance is so low that you go out there looking for things to do. Sometimes I go out there and sort of train the vines <clears throat> to make sure my tomato vines are crawling up the trellis and not, you know, going out on the ground or something like that. So that, I guess that would be a maintenance thing, but it's anything I can do while still holding a cup of coffee isn't too strenuous. <laughs> so that's my favorite thing to do is just go out and and hang out and really enjoy the garden itself. I hear you there. Me too. So, Joel, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Probably, I would say, from my grandma, Josephine, which she was a great gardener. She was a wonderful gardener, but she did have some times where her garden was a little weedy, had a few weeds, and she would try to convince all of her grandkids, of course, to come down and help her. We lived on the same farm. She had a different house on our same farm place. So I have three sisters and myself. And so she would try to convince us that it was our job to come down and weed the garden. Well, you know what it's like trying to convince a 10-year-old kid to come and pull weeds in a garden. It's not an easy thing to do. And especially the girls, they never wanted to participate. It was always me that got, got it, had to end up doing it. But sure, her big, biggest advice was just ignore the weeds and enjoy the flowers. I remember she used to say that all the time. Just ignore the weeds and enjoy the flowers. And it's sort of a good good way to go through life. You know, you're always going to have some people that you don't like or, you know, things you don't like to have to do, but there's always the good people that you do enjoy being around or the good things that you do like to do. So just try to ignore the ones that you don't like and just enjoy the ones that you do. You know, it's, it's kind of a good philosophy for life in general. Ignore the weeds and enjoy the flowers. That is so um, apropos right now in this day and age. So I like to hear that too. I'm very optimistic. So Joel, what's your favorite tool? Like, is there any special tools oh, for yeah. dealing with straw bales? Like what's your favorite tool you couldn't live without? Well, my absolute best tool that I love is my Falco number two pruner. And everybody should own either a Falco or a Corona pruner in their lifetime. They're super expensive, but they're well worth it. Um, it's the favorite tool I have. You can, they have a lifetime warranty. So you can always, you know, if you break it, you can always get a replacement or they're easy to sharpen the blades or buy new blades. Um, and it's, it's just a tool that 
does everything. You know, it works half the time. I'm using it as a screwdriver or to cut irrigation pipe or to, you know, not really for the purpose it was intended. Works great for cutting bale strings or for, you know, even a cut a small wire. If you don't, if you don't mind having to buy a new blade once every couple of years, uh, you can cut wire with it. It, it's just an all around, you can take a hole with it if you want to. It's really an all around tool. Um, please don't tell Felco I dig holes with my Felco pruner. <laughs> they won't replace them for me anymore if I bring back one. Um, but everybody should own either, a, it's a Felco or a Corona. Either one of those are famous name brands that have been around forever and they're fabulous tools. You know, Joel, a couple of years ago, I would have been like, okay, whatever you say. But then my mom got us, we got a set of Cutco pruners for Christmas two years ago. And Mike and I practically fight over them. And oh just, my goodness. What, I haven't you tried get that done, one. Oh my gosh. They cut lilacs <laughs> like you're slicing butter. I mean, they are oh, I, so, I need one of those. <laughs> so they make everything. So, and it's just like, you're down in the garden and just, I'm always like, where are the pruners? Where are the pruners? I want to get a, like a mailbox to put in the garden to keep the pruners in because you just, you get, up getting more blooms and your garden's so much tidier and there's just i totally agree pruners are the best so what's your favorite recipe like to eat from the garden oh that's easy uh roasted tomato basil soup it's actually it's not my recipe it's ina garten if you know her for the chef on tv i love ina garten she makes and i started making it a few years ago i you know you always take a recipe that you really love and then i i kind of simplify or modify I do the tomatoes on my grill. So I use a big jelly roll pan and I cut them in half. You can use any tomato for this. I mean, literally if I have tomatoes and you know how they sit on the counter and you're kind of like, boy, I should really do something with those tomatoes or in a few days or a week from now, they're not going to be good. Those are the ones you take them, just quickly rinse them off, slice them in half, put them face down. I, I put some aluminum foil down so it's easier to clean up. Aluminum foil in a jelly roll pan, throw them out on the grill, crank the grill up on high and cook them down so they're, they get nice and sort of charred and, you know, like 50%, 60% dehydrated kind of. And then you can pick that whole foil up and you can slide them all right into a bowl. And then I use an immersion blender and it takes a ton of basil. So I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember how much off the top of my head. It's like four or five cups of basil and tomatoes and basil. And it's just the best. It freezes so well. And then you pull it out. Oh my gosh, that makes me think right now. I should go to the freezer and take one out for lunch today. Um, and you you pop it in the microwave and it's just the freshest tasting. It is so delicious. Um, anybody who has never had tomato basil soup, you need to try it. I, I once did a book signing at this event and I was sharing a tent with the development chef from Progresso Soups, believe it or not. And I convinced this guy, we, we were there for four hours together. And I talked to him about this tomato basil soup recipe. And I convinced him that Progresso needed to do a tomato basil. And I'll be darned if two months later, Progresso soups came out with a tomato basil. And I swear they stole that recipe from Ina Garten because it is, it tastes exactly the same, but it is so good. Those stinkers. Oh no, I just cooked like, I had to bring um, like snack to a teacher staff meeting a couple of it was like in february i think and i brought she had this like recipe for these um fruit smoothies where you like layered yogurt and then like you would freeze like uh-huh. orange juice and pineapple juice together the night before and coconut and then yogurt and oh it was the best recipe and the teachers loved it 
No, I love her. She used I to work too. for like Martha Stewart magazine, I think, or Martha Stewart TV or something. Well, I you know what her first job? Or that's where I got the recipe from. You know what her what Ina Garten's first job was? I don't know if it was her first job, but one of her first jobs. She used to work in the Carter administration in the Department of Energy. No way. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy? Then she got a catering business in New York um, called Barefoot Contessa. Yeah. And then she, after she did that for a long time, and then she started writing cookbooks and became this big star on TV. And now my dream is to one day own a house next to her and trade recipes with her in our gardens. We could garden together and it would just be wonderful. <laughs> I love her husband, Jeffrey, too. He's great. I he's love a, that. He's a law school professor. Or, uh, actually, I think he's the dean of the law school at, is it Princeton or Yale? One of those, one of those colleges. Huh, I did not know that. I think the Barefoot Contessa is like out in the Hamptons. I thought they were from yeah. the Hamptons. But she might not do that anymore. I don't know. I know you can still see like reruns on TV. I think she's still doing it. I want to say I oh, saw a is. recent episode. Yeah. Um, oh, she's still producing. Yeah, for sure. And still writing cookbooks. We have every single one of her cookbooks she's ever written. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, I hope that comes true for you someday. Yeah. Well, would that be nice? <laughs> so are you a podcaster? Do you have a favorite podcast? I'm not. Okay. Um, I do have a favorite podcast. It's, it happens to not be a gardening podcast. I know that's terrible for me to say, but I love, there's a podcast out there called the art of manliness that I absolutely love. He's got 587 episodes and it's just really, and it's not about, it's not what the title is. Art of man. It's not like being manly or anything. He's extremely intellectual. And I mean, they talk about everything from Aristotle to is it Jordan you know, Harbinger or no, no, it, his name is Brett McKay. But oh, it's uh yeah it's art of manliness. If you ever get a chance, listen in to a couple episodes. He's I think Jordan Harbinger was the art of charm. Okay, maybe. Yeah, I'll have to the check the art that of out manliness. Too. Cool. Well, yeah. I listen to lots of podcasts that aren't gardening podcasts too. How yeah. about a favorite internet resource? Where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Oh boy, you know you can. F <sighs> That's a really good question. Where do I find myself looking for information for like a resource for gardening stuff? I usually, I look to universities, you know, that's where I find my, and especially local, you know, university of Minnesota, because things are in gardening are so important that you're finding resources that are climate specific. So, and, and that deal with the plants that we grow in our, in our climate. So, from that standpoint, from a from a resources standpoint, when it comes to gardening or horticulture, it's probably the University of Minnesota's website that I use the most. Um, I happen to be on the board at the Minnesota State Horticultural Society, and there's some great resource um, materials available through the Minnesota State Horticultural Society as well. We have like a great that. we have a great magazine. Even Montanans would love this. It's called Northern Gardener Magazine. It's won awards. It's a fabulous magazine, and it really focuses all about um, northern climate gardening. And the the writing is spectacular. I mean, for a small magazine, you know, it's not a it's not nationwide. Certainly, it just sort of covers Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, and certainly Montana would be in our in our zone as well. It's a great magazine. If any of your listeners are local up there and they're interested in checking it out. Um, go to northerngardener.org and, and get a couple 
you know, copies of it and just read them and see what you think because it's, it really is a great magazine. I'm always impressed every, it's only printed every two months. So, um, what is there? Six, six magazines come every year and it's like something you look forward to in your mailbox. It's great. Oh, I like that. I'm like, so like going crazy with the library being closed. Like I went right before school started. I mean, right before we shut down and got like a whole giant bag of books for my kids. But I had like four Elizabeth Gilbert books that I had been reading that I had ordered. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't get anything for me. And now I finished those and I'm just like going chomping at the bit and like, I need some new books to read while I'm home. I like to read well, all the time. You, you can always get them on that a, northern a Kindle. I don't like to read on. You don't like Kindle? Computer. I have a Kindle. I spend so much time on the computer. The last thing I want to—I like to have a book in my hands and like yeah. sit in the dark in the peace in the morning. Yeah. And read. My favorite time to read. So yeah, you could, but I would rather have a book in my hands. Um, I was going to say something about, cause you mentioned something earlier about how you're always interested in learning. And I just feel like people never stop really wanting to learn. Like there was always this big push when I was a kid, like you got to go to college right after high school, because otherwise you won't be interested in learning. But I just think mm -hmm. that is such a fallacy. Oh, and, it's very untrue. And I think people I agree with you. Love to learn all through life. I still love to learn, and I still love to read children's books. So I, I got to tell you about this crazy phenomenon okay. that that I I sort of discovered, or actually it was kind of explained to me. So a woman who runs two assisted living facilities for older people in in Ohio. Um, I was at a home and garden show there, and she came and she told me about this experience she had. She said. She wanted to start a garden for these people and do like raised beds for these people who are in assisted living, but they were still pretty capable, you know, got around pretty well. And they were gardeners their whole life, but now they're in this assisted living and they really don't have an opportunity. So she thought as an activity, they would start a garden. Well, to try to convince the management and people to give her space and to spend the money on the raised beds, she couldn't convince them to do it. So she said, what I did convince them to do was allow me to use part of the parking lot way in the back that we never use anyway. Nobody ever parks there because it's too big of a parking lot. She said, and they let me put up a straw bale garden in the parking lot. So she set up bales on the asphalt in this parking lot and she got people interested from this assisted living. And she said, it was the most amazing thing. She said, people would call, you know, their family would come to visit and they would say, no, don't meet me in the activity room or the lunchroom or whatever. Meet me in the garden, in the vegetable garden, in the back of the parking lot, because I need to show you my, you know, my tomatoes or my carrots or beets or whatever that are, that are about ready. And she said it became this weird thing where they were more knowledgeable about this method of gardening because they were actually physically doing it. And they were able to teach their, their kids or their grandkids that came to visit them this method and get them interested in Aww. something that they had never seen. She said it was this weird role reversal, but she said, I would come to work at seven in the morning and before breakfast, it would be somebody wheeling themselves across the parking lot, trying to get out to the garden because they were just, this was just all encompassing, um, you know, experience that they were having growing this, this garden in the parking lot. And it was like the talk of the town, you know, they made it in the newspaper and all that kind of stuff. So really a strange thing, you know, how people love to learn, even when they get much older, you know, you, you'd think somebody in their seventies or eighties, 
maybe not interested in learning something new anymore, but that's absolutely not true. It just has to be something that, that they're interested in, you know, that something new that they feel like they can contribute somehow. So I thought that was very fascinating. That's a great story. Um, how about, what about like a favorite book? Oh man, I have so many. Um, well, you know, there's four really great books written by this author named Joel Karsten about strawberry gardening. So you can always, you always have something to read if you have those laying around. Um, from a, no, tell from us a, about those. What are the four books? Um, I wrote my first one's called Strawbell Gardens, which was in 2013. That was my first published book. I'd written a self-published book before that. Um, and the, the one in 2013 came out. This is, a, this is really interesting. It came out on March 15th, 2013. And on March 21st, 2013, so six days later, that book got a full page book review in the New York times and it launched it internationally. It just set it up for, you know, they raved about it in the New York times. They said how this is revolutionary and you know, this is amazing and it makes gardening so much simpler and blah, blah, blah. They're uh, they came and interviewed, you know, normally you do an interview with an, I do lots of interviews for newspapers cause I speak all over the place and you're normally it's 10, 15 minutes and, you know, ask a few basic questions. This guy came to my house and he interviewed me for an entire day. And then he came back again another day and interviewed me for half of that day. So it was a day and a half interview to write this just amazing in-depth articles written by Michael Tortorelli. And that just launched Strawbell Gardening everywhere around that the world. That was the interview and for the New York Times? That was the one for the New York Times. Yeah. Two-day interview. Nice. Instead of two hours, it was two days. Um, and then... Uh, the second book was a, that'd be like a dream come true for me to like have the New York times interview me and my mom read it. I'm sure she read your article. Yeah, it was, it was the most emailed. That's, that was one of the interesting things about it. It was the most emailed article in the New York times for that seven day period where they were doing statistics. It was the most emailed. And that's what the, the writer, Mark, Michael Tortorelli, that's what he was most amazed about. He said, I've never had an article that had this much interest from a standpoint of people emailing it, you know, where you click on that little button next to the article and it says, email this article to a friend, that kind of thing. He said, I, oh, I like never, shares. yeah, like sharing it. Yeah. He said, I've never had an article that got that much, much interest. And then you can look up the statistics in the newspaper and you can look over a period of time, which article was the most emailed. And for the first time ever, this article that he had written was the most emailed article in the entire New York Times. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then the second book was a revision, essentially, of that first book. It was, you know, I guess, answering some questions that maybe I had overlooked, I think, maybe from the first book, or just questions that I never thought of because I'm not in that climate. So, you know, I don't think about people with a water shortage because I don't have a water shortage. So I didn't write about that. You know what I mean? But then when people kept coming back to me and saying, well, what about this? And what about, you know, really hot climates or, you know, things like that? Um, we felt like a revision would be in order for that book. So I then wrote that second book. And my third book was called Strawbell Solutions. And this is a cool book because it's stories. It's little vignettes and it's stories about people all around the world. It's, uh, 
12 different countries. Um, no, it's, yeah, 12 different countries on five continents. And stories about how people were, are using the strawbell gardening method to solve a problem that they couldn't solve using any traditional gardening methods. And so it's kind of, I mean, it's like in Switzerland, this lady gardens on the side of a mountain and it's a 14 degree slope. Well, if you till up any soil, it's going to run down the slope when the rain comes and the soil up on the side of a mountain is just horrible. And, you know, so she struggles to grow any kind of a garden up there until she started strawbell gardening. And then it talks about her success, amazing success at, 5,000 feet, you know, on the side of this mountain in Switzerland, growing um, a vegetable garden, which none of her neighbors um, ever had attempted to do other than small container gardens. But she was the first one to, to ever do this. So just stories, little vignettes about people all over. And we talk a lot about my work in, I do a lot of work now in the third world countries like Cambodia and Philippines and um, Nepal and India and South Africa, places where Places where gardening is not a hobby, but it's a it's a method for them to grow food to actually sustain themselves or to, to survive. So for a lot of these people, it's very, very difficult living conditions. And, you know, I always tell people they don't own any land, they don't own any tools, they don't have any money, and they have very little knowledge and understanding of agriculture or growing things. How in the world do you teach somebody like that to grow enough food to feed themselves? Well, you use the strawbell gardening method because you don't need to own land. You don't need to own any tools. You don't have to have any money because you can literally make the bales for free and you can prep them for free. You use the liquid that all of us produce every morning when we wake up, <laughs> our urine, which is about 12% nitrogen. And Westerners, of course, curl your nose at it because they're appalled. But urine is sterile and it's 12% nitrogen. It works really well to get these bales to begin that decomposition process. So it works really well. And then they save seeds and they plant seeds in the bales. And within 60 days of when they hear about this concept and they learn about this concept, within 60 days, they can actually be harvesting food from their own bales uh, for absolutely zero cost in terms of money. Uh, it just takes, takes some time, about probably an hour and a half worth of time um, to in total to prep that bale and get it ready and then get it planted um, and then be able to start harvesting. So it's, it's having an amazing impact. I actually did a, if you know what a Ted talk is, I did a Ted talk about using straw bale gardening to help end world hunger and how I think that this may be the beginning of the end of hunger. If we can convince people that the solution is, to use the resources that they already have, however limited those may be, to use their local resources and teach them how to grow food using those resources rather than sending them bags of food because that just exacerbates and, and can in many ways can make the problem even worse. But where do they get the straw bales from? Well, keep in mind, it doesn't have to be straw. You can make your own bale. Say, imagine just taking a great big Rubbermaid tub from the basement. You know, you dump out all your Christmas decorations. You use this great big Rubbermaid tub or a wooden box. You know, in, in some of these countries, like in Cambodia, we taught them how to make a, a baler out of wood. It's just a square box, essentially, with a big lever on top that squishes the straw really tight and allows you to then tie strings around it. So in many of these places where they grow rice as their main agricultural crop, 
their, the byproduct is rice straw. Well, in order to get rid of the rice straw right now, they burn it to get it off of their fields. And the government, everybody hates it because it's super, you know, adds lots of CO2 to the, to the atmosphere and it pollutes, you know, just the smoke pollutes the cities. So they don't like when farmers do that. So farmers are happy to give you their straw as long as you come and get it and take it off of their property. They'll, they'll happily give you their straw for free. So they get the straw, they make it into bales, and then they prep those bales. Um, all you got to do is squish the straw really tight and, and tie a string around it. And basically you've got a bale so they can make it in a square box or some of them make it in a bag um, and then tie it up really tight and you've got a straw bale. So you can use, you know, grass, you could use leaves, you could use basically anything that will decompose will, will make a bale and that bale will decompose and become soil. So any organic material will work. Uh, lake weeds, you know, that get, you see these piles of weeds that they harvest out of the lakes. Um, those weeds, you can bale those up and make, they make really nice bales. Corn stalks, bean stalks, pea straw, which is left over after you harvest peas. Um, you know, basically any organic material, Jackie, that, that you squish tightly together. You know, you could go out in your garden and pull all the weeds that you pull out of your traditional garden. You can make a bale out of those and decompose them and grow grow stuff right in that in that decom decomposing bale made from weeds or you know whatever is in there i can just hear my listeners heads spinning with all the golden <laughs> seeds you're dropping this is amazing okay so we have been talking for a while and you're probably like when is she ever gonna like cut up so here's my final question i mean sure. unless is there something that you wanted to mention that i no. okay so it's kind of a doozy it goes um if there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, Jill, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action, which pretty much you were just telling us about. But anyway, like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Well, on a global scale, I'm a big supporter of an organization called Alight, which used to be called the American Refugee Committee. And now it's, it's new name is called Alight, but they focus basically on 17 countries and they work very intensively with refugees in refugee camps in those countries. And they're, in my opinion, they're some of the most overlooked populations in the world. You know, you have countries with poor populations, but these, these people define being poor. Um, and not having available resources, healthcare, and and things like that. So this is an amazing organization. They have, I believe, around two thousand people that work for them, and they're completely funded by, you know, they're nonprofit. So they're completely funded by donations, um, and they just do amazing work, like fresh water, clean water, what we all take for granted um, where we live. You know, it's just plentiful. You turn on the faucet, and the water just comes out. And just getting fresh water to these people is an amazing feat, an amazing undertaking. And they help, they help dig wells and they help, you know, just really go down to the grassroots of where do you need to start to rebuild a society or to, or to maintain civil order in a society. And that's where these people go and that's where they, they start. Um, I'm envious, of, you know, if I was, 40 years younger, I might, uh, I might have gone that kind of direction in my life because I, th I just admire these people for what they do. 
Um, but it really is an amazing organization. And if you, you know, if you're a type of person out there that's donating money to organizations and you kind of wonder, is this organization really being wise with my donation? This is an organization that is definitely worth your time in looking into um, what they do and what they accomplish. And, you know, the times that we're living in right now with this disease, this virus disease, um, you know, we have the ability to get medical treatment if something happens to us. These people over there, like, I just am so nervous about if this gets into these refugee camps, how this will just decimate their populations because they don't have the kind of healthcare, they don't have the cleanliness like we do. And they're just compacted together in these refugee camps. And it's just going to be a disaster if it gets in there. So um, I know right now they have a campaign going on trying to, trying to help uh, raise money to try to help prevent, you know, to make sure there's lots of soap for washing and, and wash stations and things for people to keep their hands clean and try not to spread this disease. So um, if you have any extra money available, don't, don't use it on strawberry gardening, go to the, the a light and donate to them. Cause that's, in my opinion, that's really important right now is taking care of these people or, um, you know, we talk about thousands of people dying over there. You could be talking about millions of people dying. Isn't it like A L I G H T or A L I T L I like a light bulb? It's, it's A L I G H T, a light. Cool. Well, that is an issue that's near and dear to my heart because we actually don't have running water in my house. I cannot turn my sink faucet on because, like, we had a power outage in G- January and our we like it lasted too long or pump burnout. I don't know what happened. Mike and I, like we went two years, just a couple of winters ago and then got our, finally got it hooked back up to the house. And like our first six years, we lived together. We hauled water. Now we do have a spigot right outside my front door, but like, I am so ready to take a shower in a real shower. Like I've been using a five gallon bucket since January. So that is so near and dear. I mean, and that is still nothing compared to what you're talking about for sure. So um, yeah, listeners, without a doubt. And then let's talk, let's tell everybody how to connect with you. Where do they find your books and your website? And isn't there a club? Yeah, Strawbell Garden Club. Yeah, it's a great website. It's me and a partner of mine named Kelly, and she's a video producer. So all the videos on there are high def, you know, HD, and they're professional sound. And, you know, we cover every subject matter related to straw bale gardening. So if you're looking for a great resource and you're interested at all in straw bale gardening, it's a great place to go. Strawbellgardenclub.com. We sell, of course, we sell my books there as well. We also have a, a product line called Bale Buster, which is just what it sounds like. It's the it's the treatment, it's the preparation stuff that you need to get bales ready. Now you can just use regular fertilizer, but this is a great option, the bale buster. For somebody who's just getting started, it really simplifies the process. Basically it comes everything in a box. Instructions, all the product is there to get you through the whole summer. Um, we do sell an organic version called Bale Buster 5, and then we have a regular version that's not organic, and that's called Bale Buster 20. Uh, but you can read all about it on the website. If anybody's interested in ordering it, you can get it. We ship it all over the country. Every day we ship them out all over the country this time of year. Um, and you can even get a kit, which is the the bale buster and a book included as well. Um, so you can combine them together. But other than that, you know, we it's a free site you can join. We do have different levels of membership if you want to get on a private 
podcasts, that kind of stuff. You can get at different levels of membership, like everybody does, of course. But um, but it's easy and and fun. There's a forum on there, so you can ask questions and share pictures and stuff with other gardeners. And what's cool about it is it's people from all over the world, you know. So it's a garden club, but there's people on there from you know Australia and New Zealand and you know basically every country around the world. So it's kind of cool. Awesome. I hadn't seen that website. I had only been to the Straw Bale Garden Club one. So cool. Now I'm looking at it. It's got lots of awesome stuff on there. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Joel, and for everything you're doing to help change our planet. And I think you inspired my listeners and you dropped tons of golden seeds. And listeners, you know what I'm going to tell. So wait, so Straw Bale Solutions, this must be your newest book. We didn't talk about that at all. But listeners, he's probably tired. I know I have another starting <laughs> and I got to take a little quick break. So check out his books, Straw Bale Solutions. It seems like maybe he's the newest one. If you love it, leave it a five-star review um reach out to joel and just uh have a great day thank you jackie thank you joel get your copy of the organic oasis guidebook available today from amazon it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis um it starts with healthy soil it talks about building an earth-friendly landscape it helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects it talks about fruit trees and just um all the lessons that i've learned on my podcast mixed with what mike and i have done here okay what mike has done here at mike's green garden and just um i hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. Do you know someone who would benefit from the organic gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it. If you'd share the organic gardener podcast with a friend, thanks again for listening. And remember grow local.